Chapter Two of the Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two. It was in the grey of the morning, and very grey indeed the morning was, with much more black than white in the air, much more of night still remaining in the sky than of day appearing in the east, when from the old Golden Cross, Charing Cross, or rather from the low and narrow archway which at that time gave exit from its yard into the open street exactly opposite the statue of King Charles, issued forth a vehicle which had not long lost the name of diligence, and assumed that of stagecoach. Do not let the reader delude himself into the belief that it was like the stagecoach of his own recollections in any other respect than in having four wheels and two doors and windows. Let not fancy conjure up before him flat sides of a bright claret colour and a neat boot as smooth and shining as a looking-glass, four bays or browns or greys, three parts blood, and a coachman the pink of all propriety. Nothing of the kind was there. The vehicle was large and roomy, capable of containing within at least six travellers of large size. It was hung in a somewhat straggling manner upon its almost upright springs, and was elevated far above any necessary pitch. The top was decorated with round iron rails on either side, and multitudinous were the packages collected upon the space so enclosed, while a large cage-like instrument behind contained one or two travellers and a quantity of parcels. The colour of the sides was yellow, but the numerous inscriptions which they bore in white characters left little of the groundwork to be seen, for the name of every place at which the coach stopped was there written for the convenience of travellers who might desire to visit any town upon the road, so that each side seemed more like a leaf out of a topographical dictionary of the county of Kent than anything else. Underneath the carriage was a large wicker basket, or cradle, also filled with trunk mails, and various other contrivances for holding the goods and chattels of passengers, and the appearance of the whole was as lumbering and heavy as that of a hippopotamus. The coachman mounted on the box was a very different-looking animal even from our friend Mr. Weller, though the inimitable portrait of that gentleman as is now, alas, but a record of an extinct creature. However, as we have little to do with the driver of the coach, I shall not pause to give a long account of his dress or appearance, and only noticing that the horses before him formed as rough and shambling a team of nags as ever was seen, shall proceed to speak of the travellers who occupied the interior of the vehicle. Although, as we have seen, the coach would have conveniently contained six, it was now only tenanted by three persons. The first, who had entered at the Golden Cross, Charing Cross, was a tall, thin, elderly gentleman, dressed with scrupulous care and neatness. His linen and his neckcloth were as white as snow. His shoes, his silk stockings, his coat, his waistcoat and his breeches, as black as jet. His hat was in the form of a Banbury cape. The buckles in his shoes and at his knees were large and resplendent, and a gold-headed cane was in his hand. To keep him from the cold, he had provided himself with a garment which would either serve for a cloak or a coat, as he might find agreeable, being extensive enough for the former and having sleeves to enable it to answer the purpose of the latter. His hair and eyebrows were as white as driven snow, but his eyes were still keen, quick, and lively. His colour was high, his teeth were remarkably fine, and the expression of his countenance was both intelligent and benevolent, 
though there was a certain degree of quickness in the turn of the eyes, which, together with a sudden contraction of the brow when anything annoyed him, and a mobility of the lips, seemed to betoken a rather hasty and irascible spirit. He had not been in the coach more than a minute and a half, but was beginning to look at a huge watch which he drew from his fob, and to psh at the coachman for being a minute behind his time, when he was joined by two other travellers of a very different appearance and age from himself. The one who entered first was a well-made, powerful man, who might be either six-and-twenty or two-and-thirty. He could not well be younger than the first of those two terms, for he had all the breadth and vigorous proportions of a fully developed manhood. He could not be well older than the latter, for not a trace of passing years, no wrinkle, no furrow, no greyness of hair, no loss of any youthful grace was apparent. Although covered by a large rough coat, then commonly called a rap-rascal, of the coarsest material and the rudest form, there was something in his demeanour and his look which at once denoted the gentleman. His hat, too, his gloves, and his boots, which were the only other parts of his dress that the loose coat we have mentioned suffered to be seen, were all not only good, but of the best quality. Though his complexion was dark and his skin bronzed almost to a mahogany colour by exposure to sun and wind, the features were all fine and regular, and the expression high-toned, but somewhat grave and even sad. He seated himself quietly in the corner of the coach, with his back to the horses, and folding his arms upon the broad chest, gazed out of the window with an abstracted look though his eyes were turned towards a man with a lantern who was handing something up to the coachman. Thus the old gentleman on the opposite side had a full view of his countenance, and seemed, by the gaze which he fixed upon it, to study it attentively. The second of the two gentlemen I have mentioned entered immediately after the first, and was about the same age, but broader in make, and not quite so tall. He was dressed in the height of the mode of that day, and though not in uniform, bore about him several traces of military costume, which were indeed occasionally affected by the dapper shopmen of that period, when they rode up Rotten Row or walked the mall, but which harmonised so well with his whole appearance and demeanour as to leave no doubt as to their being justly assumed. His features were not particularly good, but far from ugly, his complexion fair, his hair strong and curly, and he would have passed rather for a handsome man than otherwise, had not a deep scar, as if from a sabre-wound, traversed his right cheek and part of his upper lip. His aspect was gay, lively, and good-humoured, and yet there were some strong lines of thought about his brow, with a slightly sarcastic turn of the muscles round the corner of his mouth and nostrils. On entering, he seated himself opposite the second traveller, but without speaking to him, so that the old gentleman, who first tenanted the coach, could not tell whether they came together or not, and the moment after they had entered the door was closed, the clerk of the inn looked at the way-bill, the coachman bestowed two or three strokes of his heavy whip on the flanks of the dull cattle, and the lumbering machine moved heavily out and rolled away towards Westminster Bridge. The lights which were under the archway had enabled the travellers to see each other's faces, but when once they had got into the street, the thickness of the air and the greyness of the dawn rendered everything indistinct, except the few scattered globe-lamps which still remained blinking at the sides of the pavement. The old gentleman sunk back in his corner, wrapped his cloak about him for a nap, and was soon in the land of forgetfulness. 
His slumbers did not continue very long, however, and when he woke up at the Loompit Hill, he found the sky all rosy with the beams of the rising sun, the country air light and cheerful, and his two companions talking together in familiar tones. After rousing himself and putting down the window, he passed about five minutes either in contemplating the hedges by the roadside, all glittering in the morning dew, or in considering the faces of his two fellow travellers and making up his mind as to their characters and qualities. At the end of that time, as they had now ceased speaking, he said, "'A beautiful day, gentlemen. I was sure it would be so when we set out.' The darker and the graver traveller made no reply, but the other smiled good-humouredly, and inquired, "'May I ask by what you judged? For to me the morning seemed to promise anything but fine weather.' Two things, two things, my dear sir,' answered the gentleman in black. "'An old proverb and a bad almanac.' "'Indeed!' exclaimed the other. "'I should have thought it a very good almanac if it told me to a certainty what sort of weather it would be.' "'Ay, but how did it tell me?' rejoined the elderly traveller, leaning his hand upon the gold head of his cane. "'It declared we should have torrents of rain. Now, sir, the world is composed of a great mass of fools, with a small portion of sensible men, who, like a little quantity of yeast in a large quantity of dough, make the dumpling not quite so bad as it might be. Of all the fools that I ever met with, however,' The worst are scientific fools, for they apply themselves to tell all the other fools in the world, that of which they themselves know nothing, or, at all events, very little, which is worse. I have examined carefully in the course of a long life how to deal with these gentry, and I find that if you believe the exact reverse of any information they give you, you'll be right nine hundred and ninety-seven times out of a thousand. I made a regular calculation of it some years ago, and although at first sight it would seem that the chances are equal— that these men should be right or wrong, I found the result as I have stated, and have acted upon it ever since in perfect security. If they trusted to mere guesswork, the chances might perhaps be equal, but they make such laborious endeavours to lead themselves wrong, and so studiously avoid everything that could lead them right, that the proportion is vastly against them. If such be their course of proceeding, the result will be naturally as you say, answered the gentleman to whom he spoke, but I should think that, as the variations for the weather must proceed from natural causes constantly recurring, observation and calculation might arrive at some certainty regarding them. "'Hold the sea in the hollow of your hand,' cried the old gentleman impatiently. "'Make the finite contain the infinite. Put twenty thousand gallons into a pipe pot, and when you have done that, then calculate the causes that produce rain to-day and wind to-morrow, or sunshine one day and clouds the next.' Men say the same cause, acting under the same circumstances, will always produce the same effect. Good, I grant that, merely for the sake of argument, but I contend that the same effect may be produced by a thousand causes or more. A man knocks you down, you fall, that's the effect produced by one cause, but a fit of apoplexy may make you fall exactly in the same way. Then apply the cause at the other end, if you like, and trip your foot over a stone, or over some bunches of long grass, that mischievous boys have tied across the path. Down you come, just as if a quarrelsome companion had tapped you on the head. No, no, sir, the only way of ascertaining what the weather will be from one hour to another is by a barometer. That's not very sure, and the best I know of is a cow's tail, or a piece of dried seaweed. But these men of science, they do nothing but go out mares nesting from morning till night, and a precious number of horses' eggs they have found.' 
Thus commenced a conversation which lasted for some time, and in which the younger traveller seemed to find some amusement, plainly perceiving, what the reader has already discovered, that his elderly companion was an oddity. The other tenant of the coach made no observation, but remained with his arms folded on his chest, sometimes looking out of the window, sometimes gazing down at his own knee in deep thought. About ten miles from the town the coach passed some led horses, with the grooms that were conducting them, and as is natural for young men, both the old gentleman's fellow travellers put their heads to the window and examined the animals with a scrutinising eye. "'Fine creatures, fine creatures, horses,' said the gentleman in black. "'Those are very fine ones,' answered the graver of the two young men. "'I think I never saw better points about any beast than that black charger.' "'Aye, sir, you are a judge of horse-flesh, I suppose,' rejoined the old gentleman. "'But I was speaking of horses in the abstract.' "'They are noble creatures indeed, and as matters have fallen out in this world, "'I can't help thinking that there is a very bad arrangement, "'and that those at the top of the tree should be a good way down. "'If all creatures had their rights, man would not be the cock of the walk, as he is now, "'a feeble, vain, self-sufficient, sensual monkey "'who has no farther advantages over other apes than being able to speak and cook his dinner.' "'May I ask?' inquired the livelier of the two young men, "'What is the gentlemanly beast you would put over his head?' "'A great many, a great many,' replied the other. "'Dogs, horses, elephants, certainly. "'I think elephants at the top. "'I'm not sure how I would class lions and tigers, "'who decidedly have one advantage over man, "'that of being stronger and nobler beasts of prey. "'He is only at the head of the tribe Simia, "'and should be described by naturalists "'as the largest, cunningest, and most gluttonous of baboons.' The gay traveller laughed aloud, and even his grave companion smiled, saying dryly, "'On my life, I believe there's some truth in it.' "'Truth, sir!' exclaimed the old gentleman. "'It's as true as we are living. How dare man compare himself to a dog, an animal with greater sagacity, stronger affections, infinitely more honour and honesty, a longer memory and a truer heart? I would not be a man if I could be a dog, I can assure you.' "'Many a man leads the life of a dog,' said the gay traveller. "'I'm sure I have for the last five or six years.' "'If you have led as honest a life, sir,' rejoined the man, "'you may be very proud of it.' "'What the other would have answered cannot be told, "'for at that moment the coach stopped to change horses, "'which was an operation in those days, "'occupying about a quarter of an hour, "'and the whole party got out and went into the little inn "'to obtain some breakfast.' for between London and Folkestone, which was to be the ultimate resting-place of the vehicle, two hours and a half upon the whole were consumed with breakfast, dinner, tea, and supper. Thus any party of travellers proceeding together throughout the entire journey had a much better opportunity of becoming thoroughly acquainted with each other than many a man has before marriage with the wife he takes to his bosom. Though the conversation of the old gentleman was, as the reader has perceived, somewhat morose and misanthropical, he showed himself very polite and courteous at the breakfast-table, made the tea, carved the ham, and asked every man if he took cream and sugar. What wonderful things little attentions are! How they smooth down our asperities and soften us to one another! The two younger gentlemen had looked upon their elderly companion merely as that curious compound which we have before mentioned, an oddity, and which, like a pinch of strong snuff, stimulates us without being very pleasant and now they began to think him a very nice old gentleman, 
and even the graver of the pair conversed with him almost cheerfully for the short space of time their meal occupied. When they had finished and paid the score, the whole party walked out together to the front of the house, where they found a poor beggar woman with a child in her arms. Each gave her something, but the elderly man stopped to inquire farther, and the others walked up and down for a few minutes till the coachman, who was making himself comfortable by the absorption of his breakfast, and the horses who were undergoing the opposite process in the application of their harness, at length made their appearance. The two younger gentlemen turned their eyes from time to time as they walked to their elderly friend, who seemed to be scolding the poor woman most vehemently. His keen black eyes sparkled, his brow contracted, he spoke with great volubility, and demonstrated somewhat largely with the forefinger of his right hand. What were their internal comments upon this conduct did not appear, but both were a good deal surprised to see him, in the end, put his hand into his breeches pocket, draw forth a piece of money. It was not silver, for it was yellow, and it was not copper, for it was too bright, and slip it quietly into the poor woman's palm. He next gave a quiet, almost timid glance around to see if anyone were looking, and then stepped rapidly into the coach, as if he were ashamed of what he had done. During all this proceeding he had taken no notice of his two companions, nor at all listened to what they were talking of, but as they entered the vehicle, while the horses were being put to, the one said to the other, "'I think you had better do so, a great deal. It is as well to have the carte du pay before one commences operations.' "'Well,' replied the other, "'you take the lead, Edward. The wound is still painful, though it is an old one.' What they were talking of their companion could not tell, but it excited in some degree his curiosity, and the manners of his two companions had, to say the truth, pleased him, though he was one of those men who, with very benevolent feelings at the bottom, are but little inclined to acknowledge that they are well pleased with anything or with anybody. For a moment or two all parties were silent, but the elderly gentleman was the first to begin, saying in a more placable and complimentary tone than he was in general accustomed to use, "'I hope I am to have the pleasure of your society, gentlemen, to the end of my journey.' "'I rather think we shall be your companions as far as you go,' replied the gayer of the two young men, "'for we are wending down to the far wild parts of Kent, "'and it is probable you will not go beyond Folkestone, "'unless, indeed, you are about to cross the seas.' "'Not I,' exclaimed the old gentleman. "'I have crossed the seas enough in my day, "'and never intend to set my foot out of my own country again, "'till four stout fellows carry me to the churchyard.' "'No, no, you'll journey beyond me a long way, "'for I am only going to a little place called Harborne, "'some distance on the Sussex side of Folkestone, "'a place quite out of the world, "'with no bigger a town near it than Cranbrook, "'and where we shall see the face of a human creature "'above the rank of a farmer, "'or a smuggler about once in the year, "'always accepting the parson of the parish.' "'Then you turn off from Maidstone?' "'said the graver traveller, looking steadfastly in his face.' "'No, I don't,' replied the other. "'Never, my dear sir, come to conclusions where you don't know the premises. "'I go, on the contrary, to Ashford, where I intend to sleep. "'I am there to be joined by a worthy brother of mine, "'and then we return together to Cranbrook. "'You are quite right, indeed, that my best and straightest road would be, "'as you say, from Maidstone, "'but we can't always take the straightest road in this world, "'though young men think they can, "'and old men only learn too late that they cannot.' "'I have good reason to know the fact,' said the gayer of his two fellow-travellers. 
I myself am going to the very same part of the country you mention, but have to proceed still farther out of my way, for I must visit Hythe and Folkestone first. Indeed, indeed, exclaimed the elderly friend. Do you know anybody in that part of Kent? Have you ever been there before? Never, replied the other, nor have I ever seen the persons I am going to see. What sort of a country is it? "'Bless the young man's life!' exclaimed the gentleman in black. "'Does he expect me to give him a long, picturesque description of St. Augustine's lave? "'If you wish to know my opinion of it, "'it is as wild and desolate a part of the world as a backwoods of America, "'and the people little better than American savages. "'You'll find plenty of trees, a few villages, some farmhouses, "'one or two gentlemen's seats. "'They had better have called them stools. "'A stream or two, a number of hills, and things of that kind.' and your humble servant, who will be very happy to see you, if you are not a smuggler, and are coming from that part of the country. "'I shall not fail to pay my respects to you,' replied the gentleman to whom he spoke, "'but I must first know who I am to inquire for.' "'Pay your respects where it is due, my dear sir,' rejoined the other. "'You can't tell a whit whether I deserve any respect or not. You'll find out all that by and by.' "'As to what I am called, I could give you half a dozen names. "'Some people call me the Bear, some people the Nabob, some the Misanthrope. "'But my real name, that which I am known by at the post-office, "'is Mr. Zachary Croyland, brother of the man who has Harborne House, "'a younger brother, too, by God's blessing, and a great blessing it is.' "'It is lucky when every man is pleased with his situation,' answered his young acquaintance. "'Most elder brothers thank God for making them such, and I have often had cause to do the same.' "'It is the greatest misfortune that can happen to a man,' exclaimed the old gentleman eagerly. "'What are elder brothers but people who are placed by fate in the most desperate and difficult circumstances? "'Spoilt and indulged in their infancy,' taught to be vain and idle and conceited from the cradle, deprived of every inducement to the exertion of mind, corrupted by having always their own way, sheltered from all the friendly buffets of the world, and left, like a pond in a gravel-pit, to stagnate or evaporate without stirring. Nine times out of ten, from mere inanition, they fall into every sort of vice, forget that they have duties as well as privileges, think that the slice of the world that has been given to them is entirely at their own pleasure and disposal, spend their fortunes, encumber their estates, bully their wives and their servants, indulge their eldest son till he is just such a piece of unneeded dough as themselves, kick out their younger sons into the world without a farthing, and break their daughters' hearts by forcing them to marry men they hate. That's what elder brothers are made for, and to be one, I say again, is the greatest curse that can fall upon a man. But come, now I have told you my name, tell me yours. That's but a fair exchange, you know, and no robbery, and I hate going on calling people sir for ever. Quite a just demand, replied the gentleman whom he addressed, and you shall immediately have the whole particulars. My name is Digby a poor major in his majesty's blank regiment of dragoons to whom the two serious misfortunes have happened of being born an eldest son and having a baronetcy thrust upon him couldn't be worse couldn't be worse replied the old gentleman laughing and so you are sir edward digby 
Oh, yes, I can tell you, you are expected, and have been so these three weeks. The whole matter's laid out for you in every house in the country. You are to marry every unmarried woman in the hundred. The young men expect you to do nothing but hunt foxes, coarse hares, and shoot partridges from morning till night, and the old men have made up their minds that you shall drink port, claret, or Madeira, as the case may be, from night till morning. I pity you, upon my life, I pity you. What between love and wine and field sports, you'll have a miserable time of it. Take care how you speak a single word to any single woman. Don't even smile upon Aunt Barbara, or she'll make you a low curtsy and say, You must ask my brother about the settlement, my dear Edward. <laughs> and he laughed a long, merry, hearty peal that made the rumbling vehicle echo again. Then, putting the gold-headed cane to his lips, he turned a sly glance upon the other traveller, who was only moved to a very faint smile by all the old gentleman's merriment, asking, "'Does this gentleman come with you? Are you to be made a martyr of too, sir? Are you to be set running after foxes all day, like a tiger on horseback, and to have sheep's eyes cast at you all the evening, like a man in the pillory pelted with eggs? Are you bound to imbibe a butt of claret in three weeks?' poor young men poor young men my bowels of compassion yearn towards you i shall fortunately escape all such perils replied he whom he had last addressed i have no invitation to that part of the country come then i'll give you one said the old gentleman if you like to come and stay a few days with an old bachelor who will neither make you drunk nor make you foolish i shall be glad to see you i'm not very likely to get drunk answered the others as an old wound compels me to be a water-drinker. Foolish enough I may be, and may have been, but I am sure that evil would not be increased by frequenting your society, my dear sir. I don't know, I don't know, young gentleman, said Mr. Croyland. Every man has his follies, and I amongst the rest as goodly a bagful as one could well desire. But you have not given me an answer, shall I see you? "'Will you come with your friend and take up your abode at a single man's house "'while Sir Edward goes and charms the ladies?' "'I cannot come with him, I am afraid,' replied the young gentleman, "'for I must remain with the regiment some time, "'but I will willingly accept your invitation and join him in a week or two. "'Oh, you're in the same regiment, are you?' asked Mr. Croyland. "'It's not a whole regiment of elder sons, I hope.' "'Oh, no,' answered the other. I have the still greater misfortune of being an only son, and the greater one still of being an orphan. And may I know your style and denomination, said Mr. Croyland. Oh, Osborne, Osborne, cried Sir Edward Digby, before his friend could speak, Captain Osborne of the Blank Dragoons. I will put that down in my notebook, rejoined the old gentleman. The best friend I ever had was named Osborne. He couldn't be your father, though, for he had no children, poor fellow, and was never married, which was the only blessing heaven ever granted him, except a good heart and a well-regulated mind. His sister married my schoolfellow, Leighton. But that's a bad story, and a sad story, though now it's an old story, too. Indeed, said Sir Edward Digby, I'm fond of old stories if they are good ones. But I told you this was a bad one, Sir Ned, rejoined the old gentleman sharply, and as my brother behaved very ill to poor Leighton, the less we say of it, the better. The truth is, he continued, for he was one of those who always refuse to tell a story and tell it after all, 
Leighton was rector of a living which was in my brother's gift. He was only to hold it, however, till my youngest nephew was of age to take it. But when the boy died, as they both did sooner or later, Leighton held the living on, and thought it was his own, till one day there came a quarrel between him and my brother, and then Robert brought forward his letter promising to resign when called upon, and drove him out. I wasn't there then, but I have heard all about it since, and a bad affair it was. It should not have happened if I had been here, for Bob has a shrewd eye to the nabob's money, as well he may, seeing that he is... But that's no business of mine. If he chooses to dribble through his fortune, heaven knows how, I've nothing to do with it. The two poor girls will suffer. What, your brother has two fair daughters, then, has he? demanded Sir Edward Digby. I suppose it is under the artillery of their glances I am first to pass, for doubtless you know I am going to your brother's. Oh, yes, I know. I know all about it, replied Mr. Croyland. They tell me everything as in duty bound. That's to say, everything they don't wish to conceal. But I'm consulted like an oracle upon all things unimportant. For he that was kicked out with a sixpence into the wild world has grown a wonderful man since the sixpence has multiplied itself. As to your having to pass under the artillery of the girl's glances, however, you must take care of yourself, for you might stand a less dangerous fire, I can tell you, even in a field of battle. But I'll give you one warning for your safeguard. You may make love to little Zara as long as you like. Think of the fools calling her Zara. Though she'll pay a pretty game of piquet with you, you may chance to win it, but you must not dangle after Edith, or you will burn your fingers. She'll not have you, if you were twenty baronets, and twenty majors of dragoons, into the bargain. She has got some of the fancies of the old uncle about her, and is determined to die an old maid, I can see. Oh, the difficulty of the enterprise would only be a soldier's reason for undertaking it, said Sir Edward Digby. It won't do, it won't do, answered Mr. Croyland, laughing. You may think yourself very captivating, very conquering, quite a look-and-die man, as all you people in red jackets fancy yourselves, but it will be all lost labour with Edith, I can tell you. "'You excite all the martial ardour in my soul,' exclaimed Digby with a gay smile, "'and if she be not forty, hump-backed, or one-eyed, "'by the fates you shall see what you shall see.' Forty, cried Mr. Croyland. "'Why, she's but two-and-twenty men, "'a great deal straighter than that crouching wench in white marble "'they called the Venus de Medici, "'and with a pair of eyes that, on my life, "'I think would have made me forswear celibacy "'if I had found such looking at me.' any time before I reach fifty. "'Do you hear that, Osborne?' cried Sir Edward Digby. "'Here's a fine field for an adventurous spirit. I shall have the start of you, my friend, and in the wilds of Kent, what may not be done in ten days or a fortnight.' His companion only answered by a melancholy smile, and the conversation went on between the old gentleman and the young baronet till they reached the small town of Lenham, where they stopped again to dine. There, however, Mr. Croyland drew Sir Edward Digby aside, and inquired in a low tone, "'Is your friend in love? He looks mighty melancholy.' "'I believe he is,' replied Digby. "'Love's the only thing that can make a man melancholy, and when one comes to consider all the attractions of a squaw of the Chippeway Indians, it is no wonder that my friend is in such a hopeless case.' The old gentleman poked him with his finger, and shook his head with a laugh, saying, 
"'You are a wag, young gentleman, you are a wag. "'But it would be a great deal more reasonable, let me tell you, "'to fall in love with a Chippeway squaw in her feathers and wampum "'than with one of these made-up madams all paint and satin "'and tawdry bits of embroidery. "'In the one case you might know something of what your love is like. "'In the other, I defy you to know anything about her, "'and nine times out of ten what a man marries "'is little better than a bale of tow and whalebone "'covered with the excrement of a silkworm. "'Man's a strange animal, "'and one of the strangest of all his proceedings is "'that in covering up his own natural skin "'with all manner of contrivances, "'derived from every bird, beast, fish and vegetable "'that happens to come in his way. "'If he wants warmth, he goes and robs a sheep of its great coat.' He beats the unfortunate grass of the field till he leaves nothing but shreds to make himself a shirt. He skins a beaver to cover his head, and if he wants to be exceedingly fine, he pulls the tail of an ostrich and sticks the feather in his hat. He's the universe mountbank, depend upon it, playing his antics for the amusement of creation, and leaving nothing half so ridiculous as himself. Thus saying, he turned round again, and joined Captain Osborne, in whom, perhaps, he took a greater interest than even in his livelier companion. It might be that the associations called up by the name were pleasant to him, or it might be that there was something in his face that interested him, for certainly that face was one which seemed to become each moment more handsome as one grew familiar with it. When, after dinner, they re-entered the vehicle and rolled away once more along the high road, Captain Osborne took a greater share in the conversation than he had previously done, and remarking that Mr. Croyland had put as a condition upon his invitation to Sir Edward that he should not be a smuggler, he went on to observe, "'You seem to have a great objection to those gentry, my dear sir, and yet I understand your county is full of them.' "'Full of them!' exclaimed Mr. Croyland. "'It is running over with them. They drop down into Sussex, out into Essex, over into Surrey.' The vermin are more numerous than rats in an old barn. Not that, when a fellow is poor and wants money, and can get it by no other means, not that I think very hard of him when he takes to a life of risk and adventure, where his neck is not worth sixpence, and his gain is bought by the sweat of his brow. But your gentleman smuggler is my abomination, your fellow that risks little but an exchequer process, and gains ten times what the others do, without their labour or danger. "'Give me your bold, brave fellow who declares war and fights it out. "'There's some spirit in him.' "'Gentlemen smugglers,' said Osborne, "'that seems to me to be a strange sort of anomaly. "'I was not aware that there were such things.' "'Pooh, the country is full of them,' cried Mr. Croyland. "'It is not here that the peasant treads upon the, the kibe of the peer, "'but the smuggler treads upon the country gentleman. "'Many a merchant who never made a hundred pounds by fair trade,' makes thousands and hundreds of thousands by cheating the customs there is not a man in this part of the country who does not dabble in the traffic more or less i've no doubt all my branded cherries are steeped in stuff that never paid duty and if you don't smuggle yourself your servants do it for you but i'll tell you all about it and he proceeded to give them a true and faithful exposition of the state of the county agreeing in all respects with that which has been furnished to the reader in the first chapter of this tale. His statement and the various conversation which arose from different parts of it occupied the time fully, till the coach, as it was growing dark, rolled into Ashford. 
There Mr. Coyland quitted his two companions, shaking them each by the hand with right good will, and they pursued their onward course to Hythe and Folkestone, without any farther incident worthy of notice. End of chapter 2